Payers are making it harder to access drugs. Patients are shouldering a larger share of costs while manufacturers sponsor programs to help. It's a vicious cycle that can't continue as it is. Welcome to another episode of the Prescription for Better Access podcast. As co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howell ask their guests, what is their prescription for better access? Hi, Scott. How are you today? Hey, Mark. Doing great. Really excited about today's topic and guests. It is a big one. I think for us, it's very exciting. It's like the show was picked up because listeners are sending us requests for topics they'd like to hear. And so today's is tackling copay accumulators and maximizers. Yeah, it's exciting to know that uh, we're getting some feedback from our listeners. So I would encourage others to whoever's listening to this, let us know what you'd like to hear going forward. Yeah. Well, and I'm not surprised that there's interest in this topic, Mark. As you know, it's one that impacts all the stakeholders very substantially. But before we get going, would it be okay this week if I uh, get to share our disclaimer at the beginning? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, of course, as always, the views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the co-hosts and the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of any sponsors or their affiliates. Thanks, Mark. Mm -hmm. The attorneys would be so proud. (laughs) I've been practicing. (laughs) So today we have two great guests to cover this topic. The first is Lauren Crawford Shaver, who is the Senior Managing Director and Head of Healthcare and Life Sciences for FTI Consulting. Full disclosure, we don't have a financial relationship or anything, but I do know her CEO very well, who I've known for uh, a couple of decades. And then we're also thrilled to have Carl Schmid, Executive Director for HIV and Hepatitis Policy Institute. Carl is well known in the DC community as well for his efforts for patient advocates and policy. So two great experts, and we're thrilled to uh, welcome both Lauren and Carl to the show. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Well, it's nice to meet both of you and welcome. We've been starting all of our interviews with a chance for our guests to briefly tell us about their backgrounds and their professional journeys to their current roles. Lauren, could you kick us off with that? I would absolutely love to, and thanks again for having us today. I obviously run our healthcare and life sciences work here at FTI Consulting, looking at the policy, the business, the patient, the stakeholder impacts on all things healthcare, both here and and thinking about it globally. My previous roles, I built a public affairs practice at a firm here in Washington, D.C. I've worked for several Democratic presidential candidates, and I have also worked at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services under President Obama. Plenty of experience in healthcare, but you'd be shocked, and I'm glad we're having this topic in this discussion today. Everyone's focused on costs. Always will be, always continue to be. So thanks for convening us today. Great. Well, welcome. And Carl, could you tell us a bit about your background? Sure. So I've been working at the national level on HIV AIDS policy and advocacy for around 25 years now. And I've really been focusing a lot on prescription drug access because you could understand how important it is to people living with HIV and now for people at risk of HIV. We have drugs that prevent HIV and for hepatitis. I myself have hepatitis B. I'm on a drug every single day to keep me healthy. And now we have cures for hepatitis C. 
but people are having uh, problems accessing them. So I worked in the HIV community, the hepatitis community, but a lot of different other patient groups as well, because we all share a lot of the same problems about accessing and affording prescription drugs. I've co-chaired the President's Advisory Council on HIV AIDS, still a member of that, and I'm also a consumer representative to the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. So this topic that we're talking about today, I've been really involved in for the last five years. Patients depend on copay assistance. That's how they afford their drugs. So look forward to the conversation today. Yeah, great. Well, welcome to you as well. Yeah, and I'll sort of kick off some of the content. You know, this is a complex topic, right? Copay accumulators, copay maximizers. So I'm going to start with Lauren, if I could. You're the consultant. So you're paid to, not paid by us, but generally clients will hire you to help simplify some of these complex topics. So can you help us understand sort of what are copay accumulators and copay maximizers and maybe the difference between the two of them? Absolutely. I'll go ahead and lay this out as simply as I can, but fair warning, it's not as simple as, as one may think. And Carl, please always feel free to chime in if you have any additional thoughts as well. So let's step back for a minute and just talk about copays or copayments as they are formally called. These are, as they're simply defined, how much a patient pays for medical expenses. And typically a patient pays 100% of costs out of their own pocket until they hit their own deductible, and then they have a copay. I feel like everyone who has insurance knows you go to your doctor's office, you have a $20 copay, you pay for a prescription, you have a $5 copay. And that's a way, a long way of making sure payers have shifted from some of these brand drugs to generic drugs, which is obviously has a, a cost implication to them. So let's start with that as our basis. About five-ish years ago, maybe five plus-ish years ago, around that time, this concept of copay accumulators started kind of coming out. And that was a reaction to a copay assistance program. So a copay assistance program are one where pharmaceutical manufacturers who are creating some of these new and innovative drugs that typically have a higher cost are looking for ways to help patients gain access to that medicine. They're typically patients who are underinsured, so don't have a plan that fully covers everything for them, but helps to give them some relief in getting to their program itself. I should also clarify, this is different than need-based patient assistance programs. These are separate, and I, I think sometimes these get thrown together and they're different. The copay assistance, we're really focused on the underinsured to make sure that they had access to the drugs that they needed. So let's turn to what these actually are and, and what the copay accumulator is. This is where the, the insurers and the, the manufacturers diverge um, with the story of these programs itself. But five years ago, insurers would say that these copay coupons at their core were, are really like a marketing tool. They'd be something to get patients onto a specific medication that costs additional money that then would get them through their insurance process faster so the insurer would have to be paying more. So let's take this in terms of dollars and cents. And I'm going to use round numbers, which are totally made up, but will help us all do math better and more efficiently. In a copay assistance program, if a patient needs access to a drug, well, let's say is $1,000 a year. But they have a copay that gets them that's going to help be like something like $1,000 a month. Something that's like massive. What that company, what that is, the copay assistance program will do will help pay that money to hit that medium, that deductible that that patient has to pay for. And then their drugs will be paid for for the rest of the year because they have met that deductible. When you talk about an accumulator program, what the accumulator program would do would say because that coupon is being paid for by the manufacturer, not the individual, it doesn't count towards that program. And then that patient will still have to pay that out of cost. 
And this is where, again, the manufacturers and the insurers differ on the value of what they are doing. The manufacturer will say, I'm helping the patient get access to the medication that they need that ultimately helps them. And the insurer was saying, well, you're just passing money through and you're shifting money within the process. So this is kind of where it goes down to who pays for what. And there's a little bit of rearranging deck chairs on what's really happening and who's paying for what, but that's really the nuts and bolts of this. Who's paying, ultimately paying to get that deductible so that patient has access to their medication. So I may want to add a little more. I think, Lauren, you're being too nice. I am being nice, girl. So the way the copay accumulator works is first the copay assistance is being paid by the drug manufacturer. And then once it runs out, they then go to the patient and ask them to pay if you want to continue to take your drug. And so in my view, they're double billing. So I think they're really ripping off the system. And how about the difference between the accumulators and maximizers? Can you elucidate that? Absolutely. So the maximizers are an additional newer program that you're seeing more often through insurers where they're going to take a look at the individual's cost-sharing amounts in their insurance. And they're going to say, oh, this this manufacturer is going to pay $10,000 throughout the year. And rather than hit that deductible or hit that payment at the very beginning of the year, they're going to split it up and divide it by 12 months and say, this is what we're going to, we know you're going to hit each month, so we'll divide it up that way. So you never really hit that maximum number, and the insurance isn't paying for it. anything at the end. The insurers are taking the maximum amount from the manufacturer and dividing it by 12 to hit that plan year. Mm-hmm. I've heard it sometimes described, Carl, as a little more patient-friendly, the maximizer, because the patient doesn't really hit that. But it still sounds like it has that double-dipping thing that you were talking about. I'm going to say more than double dipping because what they are able to do is to collect more money than what they're legally entitled to. We'll say the out-of-pocket you know, maximum is like $9,000, give or take a couple hundred dollars. But if the copay assistance is like 15, well, let's say $12,000 and you divide it by 12, that's $1,000 a month and that's higher than the maximum out-of-pocket. Yeah, so the patient is not hurt. But that's only if you look at the spend on drug. Remember, cancer patients, HIV patients, they have a lot of other medical costs as well. And once you satisfy your deductible, you don't have to pay for that. The insurance does for these other things. So if you're just looking at the drug spend, it doesn't hurt the patient. And they're on other drugs as well. So it's just harder and harder to fill in your deductible and meet your out-of-pocket costs. Yeah, interesting. Well, can I I just sort of follow that up, Carl? From your perspective, again, you've been a patient advocate for some time. Help us understand, like bring this down to like a day-to-day, what's it like for a patient when they're facing one of these programs, the accumulator or the maximizer? Yeah. So most of the times people don't even know that they're being subject to this because the PBMs or the insurance companies are not putting this in their documents that, you know, people, when they select their plans, read. It's not on the summary of benefits and coverage page. That's like that eight-page document that shows, you know, how much you pay for each drug and things like that. But it's buried in plan documents, like on page 150. And who knows? You have to look for it. 
And if you don't even know about it, why would you even be looking for it? So people don't know about it and they pick up their drugs like they think, you know, it should be normal times because they have the copay assistance from the drug manufacturer. They pick up their drug. Well, then they find out a couple months later, they go and pick up their drug and they're stuck with a thousand or a $2,000 bill. And they say, why? They don't know that copay assistance was not counting towards their maximum out-of-pocket costs. So what happens then? They probably don't pick up their drug. People don't have that type of money. It's an unplanned expense. People these days, especially in this high time of inflation and high cost of living, people just don't have that type of money. So they don't pick up their drug is the most likely outcome, unfortunately. And Carl, to piggyback off that, I know you and I have done some work before where we've seen most Americans have somewhere in their savings account between $600 to $1,200. And so if you are planning on one of these programs to get to a deductible and then you're suddenly out $1,000, that's a significant amount of money that you have that you're backstop that you're suddenly out. So you're definitely not going to be able to go pick up the next round of medication. And that obviously has huge potential costs to people who need those medications. Interesting. So, Lauren, in your work as a consultant, I know you work both with the plans and plan sponsors on the one hand, but also manufacturers as well. Maybe share to start your perspective, like from the plans perspective, how do they think about these things and when do they choose to offer them? How do they recommend the accumulator versus the maximizer, things like that? Well, first off, I'm not speaking directly for a plan, but in terms of thinking about them, Everyone in broader healthcare is looking to find ways to drive down costs. And costs can be to the broader healthcare system, to the federal government, and then to the individual out-of-pocket component of this, right? And I don't know how exactly how everyone's focused on this, but I do firmly believe everyone in healthcare is trying to make the best decision for the patient themselves. And so if a plan or a PBM is looking to do something, they're ultimately trying to make sure they are getting the most cost-effective and effective treatment to the patient themselves, just like the drug manufacturer is doing as well. But where I see a lot of, to Carl's point, of challenges here is that the information is buried deep inside of the plan. So the facts are very, very hard for an individual to understand and see what they're ultimately signing up for. And quite honestly, if you're not in healthcare, the concept of deductibles and co-pays and accumulators and maximizers and adjustments and all of these pieces is quite overwhelming. So the challenge of navigating the system is very real for patients. And I think that's actually been a huge concern in kind of the, the massive growth in accumulators. And I was even the faster, more rapid growth in maximizers we've seen in the system. It's really a how are we moving payment and how are we moving money around and who's ultimately keeping it rather than in the end. That's what we're seeing a, a lot of happening right now. But speaking of keeping it, I mean, let's, is some of this being driven also by the consultants? Because I know they're, those firms are out there making a percentage of the copay dollars that come in through these programs. And so they're pushing it aggressively. Yeah, I mean, I think like I'm going to defend my industry a little bit, but there are people looking at ways in the healthcare system to create those types of efficiencies. And some of them are different efficiencies than others. And so, yes, I have heard of, we, I do not do this, my team does not do this, but there are some consultants that go out there and assess certain plan designs and find ways to make changes that do have incentives for them to point that out. 
Scott, if I could go back on one thing, which is like to back to Carl, because Lauren talks about like reducing the cost of healthcare, but what really what it sounds like is it's making more money for the payers and shifting those costs to the patient. That sounds like what this is. So you mentioned that they didn't fill the drug. I mean, what is the implications of this for patients? And are you starting to see, you know, even patients getting sick again? Yeah. And, you know, one thing that we also have to remember, this is all after people pay their premiums. You know, those aren't cheap. If you're a family, this starts adding up, especially if you have to pay it on your own and if you don't have support from uh, your employer. So this is all after the premiums that people expect, oh, I have health insurance. That's great. But then they can't afford to use their health insurance. I have to give credit. There are maximum out-of-pocket costs now for individuals around $9,000. But for a family that's two people or more, it's $18,000. That's still a lot of money. So with high deductibles and, you know, people have to make their choices too. They can't afford a high premium, then, you know, they may be stuck with high deductibles and that could be seven, $8,000 and people just don't have that type of money. So yeah, people go without their drugs and it's very sad to read, you know, the stories of people. You have to have a shelter over your head. You have to have food to live. That's getting more expensive. And then transportation. And then you have to afford a medication. And people, when they are stuck with these copay accumulators, they didn't anticipate. And that makes it even harder because they couldn't even budget for that because they didn't even know about it. People go without their medications and they get sick. And, you know, there's been some studies that shows that people on with copay accumulators are delaying their treatment, their health outcomes are not as good. And we've seen some media stories too, of very sad stories of people not taking their medications for them or for their kids. That's why you're seeing action, not just in the media reporting this at this point, you see state legislatures taking action. And you see a lot of people stepping in saying, the implementation of these accumulators programs has a negative impact on people. And I believe that we're at 17 states in Puerto Rico now that have outlawed copay accumulators within their states. And there's obviously a lot of momentum behind that because there is, now that we've, we've done this for five years, we are seeing the impact of it. It's great. And I'm working on a lot of states to you know grow that number this year, but it's not the solution that we need because they only represent, well, it's taken a lot of time and work to get those state by state. We're up against a lot of opposition and a lot of things that aren't always true are said, and I'll be nice. And it only goes to program those plans that are state regulated. And most people get their insurance, you know, they're in larger employers. So we do need a national solution to get at accumulators. So, you know, my organization has filed litigation actually against the Department of HHS for promulgating a rule. It's called the Notice of Benefit and Payment Parameters Rule, and that's the rule that governs all plans every single year. For the 2021 year, they said that copay assistance does not have to count. And since then, we've seen the growth of uh, these programs. So we feel that is a violation of the Affordable Care Act for a number of reasons. As I said earlier, that these insurers are collecting more money than they're entitled to. There is a maximum amount per year that they can receive. 
since they're double dipping, they're getting more money. Secondly, the uh, regulations that implement the Affordable Care Act says that cost sharing is on our behalf of the beneficiary. And this is on behalf of the beneficiary, these payments. Also, this is an Administrative Procedures Act that was filed last August 2022 in the U.S. District Court in D.C. And it is an Administrative Procedures Act for a number of reasons. One, that it, we say it violates the current law, that's the ACA, but also the way that the rule was promulgated. It says that it really leaves it up to the PBMs and the insurers to decide the definition of cost sharing. And that's not right. What you need, certainty. And it either means, what does cost sharing mean? We shouldn't leave it up to an outside entity to, to decide. So those are some of the reasons that we filed litigation. I hope it will end by this summer. On May 1st, we filed our reply to the government's brief which I don't think was very strong. We may go to oral arguments during the early part of the summer or not, but I hope that we will be successful in saying if we are successful, then copay assistance would have to count. We're looking at legislation at national level. There's been bills introduced in both the House and the Senate to say that copay assistance has to count. And of course, we could always get the administration to issue regulation, but we have not been successful in that. And that's why we've had to turn to litigation. That's interesting, Carl. So if you had to handicap things and think about how this might turn out, what do you think about the chances for your lawsuit or the chances for federal legislation or regulatory action? Well, we failed so far with the regulatory action. It's really been disappointing. We tried with the Trump administration, then we tried a couple of years now with the Biden administration. And as I said, I'm disappointed because they want to lower the cost of drugs for people. And this is a perfect way. And this is actually increasing patient costs for prescription drugs. I think it's going to be difficult to get Congress to agree on this. Um, they are considering PBM reform. So there's, an, uh, is there's a possibility of getting it in there, but I think that's an uphill battle as well. We're up against some very powerful forces. I'm not a lawyer, but I don't think that the government has made their case they didn't take on the whole double dipping issue at all. They'd used one paragraph. So I think that our case is strong. I hope people are following it. The government has to file their response the end of May, and then it's up to the judge. We may have oral argument and then or he'll decide. So I think one thing Carl's pointed to is, is really important here. I think there's four major lanes that we are talking about, copy accumulators, max managers, and what this really means. And again, this is like, ballooned in the last five years from a copay assistance program so people could get the new innovative drugs that, that had a little bit higher price tag to suddenly everyone adjusting how your benefits package was to focus on those cost containments and moving around. So one is the legal route that Carl is spearheading and leading and making sure that that case is present. Two is, is any federal action that can happen. And obviously the bipartisan work and approach to figuring out protecting costs is, is critically important, but nothing's happened there. You're seeing action at the states, as Carl alluded to. It takes a lot of time. State legislatures are typically in session for like one to four months, and some of them aren't even don't even meet every year. So going from 17 to 50 is going to take quite some time, and obviously patients don't have time to think about that. And I think the fourth lane is explaining this and working with the media and reporters. You know, this is like huge implication for cystic fibrosis drugs and treatments, but also has a huge 
complication for those who have ulcerative colitis or Crohn's and are seeking their regular treatment based on what they need day in and day out. And this really impacts more people than I think we assume. The more it gets into everyone's day-to-day plan design, the more it impacts their out-of-pocket. So across all four of those lanes, I think I would say that the most important one is the storytelling aspect of what how this ultimately impacts people. Because we're here having a discussion on policy where we're moving dollars from a manufacturer into an insurer versus out of the patient to an insurer to a manufacturer. But patients need the treatments that ultimately help them live their lives day in and day out. And we need to get back to that storytelling. That's ultimately a decision here. And over the last five years, we've put a whole bunch of other people or systems or structures in between what the physician tells the patient they need. Lauren, thanks for that. And, you know, in the meantime, we read and hear and understand that the use of the programs is actually growing quite rapidly. Can you estimate what their penetration is now and where it may be headed? Well, Adam Fine has a great blog on this. I'll point it out. He said something like, I think it's something like 76% of plans have accumulators at this point. I think we're just under 60% on maximizers, which is huge considering this is, again, five years. If we're talking about something that's like 20, it's different, but five years. Right. And the corollary to that, I've read from the manufacturer perspective that they're spending on copay assistance as also, likewise, ballooned. Any comments on that? How are the manufacturers reacting to all this? The manufacturers are really focusing on making sure the drugs are in the hands of the patients that need them most. And they're really zeroing down on that. Much like I'm, I'm assuming that the payers are doing something similar, but that's ultimately where everyone is, is what do the patients need? So I don't have the numbers, you know, but it's billions and billions of dollars, right? And, you know, 17, 18 billion dollars, I think, is the recent estimate of how much manufacturers spend on copay assistance. And, and maybe they, you know, one of the reasons why we haven't been so successful in the media and with regulators is, is I don't think they understand the magnitude of that number. Pride manufacturers don't go around talking about it, but I talk about it. And I think it's important to show that if we didn't have copay assistance, that's how much money patients would have to come up with. And that's a lot of money. And we've seen reports that the amount is growing because of these copay accumulator programs, because of these maximizer programs. So I think that it gives further reason for our litigation and against the argument that they are double dipping, you know, because it is costing manufacturers and patients more uh, money. You know, one of the things, and this is perhaps another show, but we wouldn't be here talking about copay assistance and if we had better insurance benefit design. Because as I said earlier, this is after premiums. We have high deductibles. We have high coinsurance. Once last time you went to an emergency room and paid 50% coinsurance, but they seem to do that for prescription drugs. Something is wrong with our insurance benefit design. And that's, you know, and it's nice to go to the media. I go to the media to get my points across, but we need legislators to step in and our regulators to put, you know, I've been a, a proponent of standardized plans, capping copays. That's the only way people are going to be able to afford their prescription drugs. And I think if I could, I just want to go back to Lauren's earlier point that this copays were designed to encourage people to move off of a brand to a generic. Now copays are used for single source drugs. There's no alternative. You got diagnosed with cancer, whatever. You're facing something tragic. You have 
CF, or as you said, Crohn's or HIV or hepatitis. I mean, these are things people don't want to have. And so now to be faced with this, to have put the full cost of these sort of copays and increase the copays and even have a copay is outrageous. So I think from our perspective, we've heard this consistently through all of our podcasts that the benefit design itself has to change, has to change. Lauren, do you have a perspective on could the benefit design change as we look ahead? I sure do. I think overall we have to look at plan design and make sure it is it is designed with the patient at the center and ultimately think about what it is that we're serving that creates, I'm going to use all the buzzwords here, value that creates rooted in research care and also thinks about preventative medicines. And this is really what you're seeing a lot coming out of the CMS right now is value-based care, right? We have to move from a plan design world that focuses on people getting the best preventative treatment and care proactively. And then obviously a payment model that incentivizes people to do that, not just treat you when you're sick. Now, obviously when we want to talk about plan design for these medications, we want the best new innovative treatments that are coming to market because they work and they're making people healthier and they're also saving us money longer term because we are keeping people healthier and longer. And so we have to then fundamentally change what insurance was, which was paying for you when you got sick. That's the way I think we need to step back and think about plan design. That's not just like a tweak on the corners. That's like a full overhaul of how we're approaching patient-centered care. Mm -hmm. Well, in the meantime, you know, we read that manufacturers are starting to respond on their own. As Carl pointed out, it's billions of dollars a year and it's rapidly growing, as you cited, Lauren. I understand that several manufacturers have begun to contemplate putting limits in place for their copay assistance programs. Are you familiar with those reports and how might that impact the patients as well? Yes, some manufacturers are stepping in and thinking about how they are working with their patients. I think most notably, Vertex has made some changes. I think that's the one folks can see in the news regularly, specific to some of their CF medication. They're putting a a cap on what they're going to put out each year. Now, that does impact the patients and the care that they're able to seek and what they're able to get through their insurance and their coverage. That might mean that they have to shift to a different medication. That might mean they're paying some more out of pocket. That might mean they're going to look for a different plan. But it's an attempt by the manufacturers to say, wait a minute, we're just giving money away right now to a PBM because of the way they've structured this plan. That's not what this program was designed for. And we're going to start taking that back. They've been quite aggressive. That goes into effect this year. I know manufacturers are taking a look at their programs to make sure that they ultimately have the patient in mind. I've also read about the the emerging edge of this, that some plans now are going a step further in declaring certain medications non-essential and therefore not covering them at all, and then referring patients to the manufacturer's free goods program. Is that right? I could take that one. And this is like from the playbook, you just can't make it up. And it is unbelievable. This is We're mostly seeing this in the self-funded market. They're taking advantage of perhaps a loophole in the Affordable Care Act and the definition of essential health benefits. So what they're doing, the, these players that are getting a cut of the money, as you talked about earlier, looking at ways to make money, they're going to these employers 
I don't need to worry about mentioning names or not, but it was a Cigna plan and they went to a employer. They work with a group called Savon SP. They have a long list of drugs, many of them in HIV and hepatitis, actually the biggest selling HIV drug right now. Many cancer, arthritis drugs, rheumatoid arthritis drugs are on this list. Okay, remember these people have insurance. Paid their premiums. Yeah, yeah, or their employer does. You get a letter and say, if you wanna continue on this drug, you have to sign up for this other program, which save on SP is not insurance. So you don't have any of the protections. And what they do is, oh, they'll say, you don't have to pay anything. It's zero. If you don't, now other plans say you will have to pay full price of the drug. This save on SP, this one says 30% co-insurance you'll have to pay if you want to keep it through your insurance. But Save on SP then says, we will seek manufacturer copay assistance. So here on one hand, they're fighting copay assistance. On another, they're milking it. Now there's some other companies out there too that say we will put you on free drug programs. Now remember those free manufacturer drug programs are for people for who are uninsured. These people do have insurance, but they are putting them in a program that makes them uninsured. They also, another one says we will seek imported drugs. And the FDA has recently sent a warning letter to that entity for doing that. So this needs to be stopped. It's taking advantage of a loophole. Hopefully Congress could set in. We need media attention on it, but it is just bizarre what people are doing. If I could, because this is, my wife says, this is why I don't have any hair, Scott. (laughs) Whenever I get stressed, it's like, I can't believe this, right? Like, this is just so upsetting. Carl used to have hair as well, but he, I guess. (laughs) But if I could, I mean, these are just terrible impact on patients. It's very risky. Yeah. It's leading to obviously just, you know, the whole point of having insurance, the whole point of Obamacare, the whole point of why we are doing what we, I started my career when we had pre-existing conditions and people getting maximum benefits and then they're kicked off their plans. I mean, let's get, we got rid of that. We don't want to go back to that. But I guess my question is with these things coming from the payers, right? These are like, boom, these are body blows from the payers to both the manufacturers and to the patients. What can be done? Are there solutions? Are there, we have a lot of listeners, a lot of different stakeholders from across, you know, different spectrums. Are there other things that can be done? Any new technology, any sort of better way? Well, I'm going to say this, and obviously Carl's going to leave with the legal front on on the actions being taken here to stop this, but I wouldn't call them body blows. I would call this experimental and their tests in a system that ultimately tests patients. And that's completely unacceptable here. This is a, an attempt to figure out who can hold more market share of the payment as they think about a person's health needs. And that's what's going on here is who can hold most of that at a time when the pharmaceutical industry is booming, coming out of COVID, coming out of some new and innovative therapies and treatments that are, again, helping people live longer, better lives. And we're looking at plan design that ultimately is asking these questions and testing this out without patients truly understanding what's behind the wall. We need to start getting patients informed and start calling out what this is and why they signed up for one thing, but they're getting something else because it was on page 18 of their paperwork they signed. 
we've got to put patients at the front of this because they're the ones being duped in this moment. Carl, thoughts? Yeah, I don't know what to add. I mean, I do think that patients need to speak up more, but we're being worn out, I think. And maybe that's the whole goal is remember to get to your drug, you still have to go through a prior authorization process, step therapy, all these other barriers. I started earlier I'm with, you know, I'm a consumer representative to the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. We're like 20 of us. And, you know, you go into their meetings and there's like 3,000 people there and they're all from the insurance companies. And the drug manufacturers don't have a very good reputation, you know, these days, which makes it harder. And that's been one of the reasons why the copay accumulator issue has been, it, yes, it's complicated, but two, it's drug manufacturer copay assistance. Oh, it must be bad, you know? And of course it's not, but the other side does make it out to be bad. So, you know, I do think it's an education to lawmakers, to the media, to improving the image of the pharmaceutical companies, and also call out what the PBMs and insurers are doing a little more. And who knows what they're going to think of next, because it's a body blow or whatever, but they're going to keep on punching, unfortunately. Let's not forget that the payers are also receiving the rebates. Correct. Yeah. Right. And a whole host of fees and a whole host of other things. We cover this on episode six with Mesfin Tegeno. And, you know, there's a lot that manufacturers are already stepping up and paying. Well, you know, we always close here by asking our guests for their prescription for better access. So there's a lot, a lot of moving parts here. Carl, maybe I'll start with you. If you had a magic wand, what would you like to see happen? to improve patient access? Yeah, I think we need limits on copays. We need to make sure that people don't have to go through a huge deductible before they kick in. And so that's why I've been an advocate of standardized plans for prescription drugs. Yep, good. And what would you add, Lauren? Well, first off, I wanna echo everything Carl has said because we do need standardized plans. Only with standardized plans, I want more education about the patient being at the center of their care because once they understand, truly understand their plan, their care, and have that really, kind of that broader relationship, they're going to be taking better care of themselves. They're gonna be more focused on getting all the treatments they've been prescribed. They're gonna understand any cost and what it means for them. And once we have people focus on that, we're gonna have better uses of our systems, period. But right now, there's just too many gray area walls being thrown up because people want to assume as much cash as they can on certain sides and that ultimately impacts patients. So I really think making sure that education and the patient understanding increases along with more transparent plans. Well, both of you have been fantastic. So love your prescriptions for better access and your thoughts. And so let me thank you. Thank you both for taking the time to get us up to speed on copay accumulators and maximizers. And sounds like, Scott, we need to do another episode on I don't even know what they're called, these exclusion programs or these lasered out drug programs. I think that's going to have to be a whole episode that we tackle. But thank you both to Lauren and Carl for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. So, Scott, I can go first if you want on the on some of the key sure. takeaways from today. Yeah. What were some key takeaways, Mark? Well, I'm going to start from the beginning, which is that copays have gone off the rails. What they were intended use and what they're being used for now is just night and day. And I know payers are using the same, oh, it incents people, but then they have a copay for life-saving medicine. You know, one, it's gone off the rails. Second, I did not know, and I appreciate Carl bringing this up and Lauren mentioned as well, that 
payers are not upfront about these accumulators and maximizer programs. You know, you think you're, you have health insurance, you're paying for health insurance. You've had it probably for years. And then a new program gets introduced that you're not even aware of. And next thing you know, your child or your spouse or your parent or, or whatever you're dealing with is struggling. I love that Carl's been proactive in filing the lawsuit, and I really appreciate Lauren's four lanes. I'm going to steal that from Lauren and uh, use that because I think those it makes a lot of sense in terms of what we have going on. I'm encouraged by the bills that are in front of Congress, having been in Washington for now for, for a long time. I'm not as optimistic. I think we're, as Carl said, it's a little disappointing. And then it all comes down to better benefit design. You know, it's like, maybe we should just blow up insurance as we know it today for drug coverage and start over and think about something better. Maybe that's ultimately the best prescription for better access. So anyways, those are some of the key points. You? All good points, Mark. Yeah. You know, from all the guests we've been speaking with, we've been learning about how much stress the system is under and the dysfunction of the system that we've created and the reactions that are occurring from all that stress. And this is sort of a a pinnacle example of that in some respects. I mean, it is so complicated, so difficult to understand, and so dysfunctional, as uh, Carl and Lauren both pointed out as well. I think it's a great example of what Jamie Robinson called the war of all against all, just sort of the tactical back and forth that's going on amongst the parties, as Lauren described it as sort of trying to decide who's going to pay for what in the overall expense of things. The unfortunate part is, we know, is that it creates a ton of friction. It tires patients and doctors out. It keeps many of them from getting even medicines that they really need. It's expensive. The navigation of all of this is extraordinarily expensive as well. And now we've got, you know, manufacturers putting in limits for the programs and so on, going even a step further. And so, this is sort of a peak example, I think, of the complexity and the dysfunction. And so for me, the big takeaway, and I, I love the ideas about reforming benefit design, because it is foundational. It, it tells you like, add-on solutions here, you know, are probably not going to fix this. And in fact, as Jamie pointed out, that stuff all just gets repriced into the next generation of product prices. And so we think we're saving money and we're not even saving money. But notions like benefit design changes and so on that are more foundational, that feels to me like those are the things that might have a chance to make things more rational and better for patients. Great. Well, I can see why you were the A student and became the doctor because you did a great job of sort of stepping back and taking a look at this from a larger perspective. And I think you, you bring up some fantastic points. And so again, let me just wrap up by saying thank you again to Lauren and Carl for joining us. You're a fantastic guest. I'll always thank my co-host, Dr. Scott Howell, for his uh, joining me on this journey. Thrilled that we have now have seven episodes. I feel like we've been renewed, as I said. So we're excited about what we have ahead of us. And let me just say to all the listeners, thank you for listening to us. This was our first episode where we it was driven by our listeners. So we encourage you to send emails to comments at prescriptionforbetteraccess.com and tune in to our new YouTube channel, which hasn't gotten a lot of coverage yet, but we've only been out for a couple of weeks. But we'd love for people, they could see us and see me losing my hair and losing my, getting stressed out. But thank you, everybody. And thank you for joining us today. Join co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howe as they launch the Prescription for Better Access 
podcast. The podcast will be available on Spotify, Apple, Google, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email Mark and Scott at comments at prescriptionforbetteraccess.com. Thank you.